0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this month's iteration of SureCloud Cyber Threat Briefing. As usual, my name is Craig Moores. Um, I'm a carpenter of the Risk Advisory Practice here at SureCloud, and I'm joined by Hugh Rayner, one of our Senior Security Consultants and Cloud Security leads. it's actually been quite a quiet month. Um, we haven't seen any significant cyber breaches, which I don't think we've said in the last couple of years. Um, however, we have still pulled out a few topics to talk through uh, this afternoon, and we're going to start Hugh with the recent zero days. Um, I think everybody loves a zero day because they're largely unknown until they happen, um, and we've had a couple of them. So we had Felina, and we had uh, Atlassian release or we'll spoke about a zero day within Confluence. So do you want to maybe start by sort of talking a little bit about Felina and then maybe move on and we'll talk a bit about Confluence? Yeah, sure.
1: So Felina is the, the name given to, to this vulnerability. It was first seen to be exploited in April. So, you know, there was there was quite a bit of, of, of time that it was being used without anyone detecting or understanding it. Basically, what, what it does is attackers can create. A, a file, normally a, a Word file, some email attachments work as well. And that file then calls out to the Microsoft Support Diagnostic Tool, MSDT, and by you know, providing that file with a, a, a crafted input, padding it out to beyond 4,096 bytes, that disables its request for a, for a passphrase um, that it, nobody would ask you, and then gives you full remote code execution on the machine. That's in the context of the um, of like Microsoft Word or whatever that's running it. So yeah, uh, and we've just seen in the in, in the chat that's just been fixed on um, patch Tuesday um, a couple of days ago. So yeah, incredibly important there to get that patch rolled out. It's been actively exploited for a few months and it's really quite an interesting one. Quite a lot of detail in it. We won't go into it in this threat briefing. A security guy called John Hammond has done a really good um, YouTube video on it explaining in detail you know how it works and, and giving a, a rundown of you know a demo and a walkthrough of it so i uh, i think we can put that in the chat i'd strongly recommend you know if you've got an, an interest in in the Felina vulnerability to check that out
0: yeah i think it's really interesting isn't it is there anything specifically other than the fact that this has been exploitable for a little while now is there anything explicitly different about the zero day
1: yeah so up until recently you know the the modus operandi would have been to use macros uh, macro enabled documents but obviously recently microsoft you know decided to deprecate that sort of functionality so no surprise that attackers are you know going to be looking for alternative ways to achieve code execution on machines through you know office documents and, and e- emails and things like that so yeah it, it just goes to show really that it is a game of whack-a-mole insecurity and in that as soon as we think you've come up with a, a reasonably good way of eliminating one avenue of attack a new one that achieves the same goal is just going to spring up.
0: Yeah, Matthew beat me to my final point, which was um, more the fact that it's just been patched, hasn't it? So again, you know, thinking about vulnerability management and, and going kind of cyber hygiene, it's, it's obviously really important that people are rolling those um, types of patches out into their environments and, and understanding really where they're exposed.
1: Yeah, similarly, I suppose, with the, with the Confluence. So it's Confluence uh, data center and Confluence server. There, we've got a uh, an unauthenticated code injection of vulnerability. So, you know that that's quite significant in that it's code injection, allowing arbitrary execution of code. Um, but also, it's an unauthenticated you know, vulnerability as well. So, you don't need to have a valid account. Again, that one has been patched, but uh, you know it is a critical issue. So, if you haven't, you know, if you're if you're running Confluence self-hosted, crucially, you know, if if, you, if you're running your Confluence through Atlassian, so you've got uh, you know, your organization.atlassian.net and you, you access your Confluence through that, not a problem. You don't need to worry about anything. It's only if you're self-hosting Atlassian and you need to get that patch deployed as quickly as you can.
0: I think it's really important that people that are using the hosted versions, obviously, you know, there is a note from Atlassian around the, the kind of lack of exposure on that front. This is um, really directed at people that host it themselves, isn't it?
1: Yeah, indeed. I think uh, Alassian have been quite good because as well as putting out the patches, you know, in a reasonable time frame, they've also yeah, they acknowledge the fact that in you know, a lot of organizations it's not as easy as just right, okay, quick, let's deploy a patch as soon as as soon as we can. So they've also provided workarounds as well where you can put a you know specific jar file on the on the server and and sort of micro patch it like that, you know, outside of the normal update cycle.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of organizations now, the the way that they respond to these things, I I think is really important. I was reading um, up on some, uh, the security posture of a potentially uh, new piece of software that we're going to be using. um, And I noted on their website that they'd actually been through a number of the recent CVEs and they've been looking at whether they affect their systems and, and they publish all of that alongside their security certifications and things for their product, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, you know, not a lot of organizations um, are actually willing to put that information out into the public domain unless, you know, obviously they, they have a breach. So I think it's it's obviously interesting to see that they're taking this step change into being very proactive around making things easy to obviously remediate and, and working with organizations to obviously try and prevent those things from being exposed for any longer than they need to. Quite, quite an interesting um sort of change in direction for some organisations to be considering.
1: Yeah, certainly. And I mean, I think we'd all sooner trust a vendor that is open and transparent with, hey, look, this thing isn't right. Here's the fix. You know, as opposed to the approach of let's just silently patch this in the background in the normal update cycle and hope that people don't realise until then, even if that results in, you know, fewer headlines. I still think, you know, I'd I'd sooner go with the people that were, uh, you know, regularly disclosing issues, but also on top of, you know, remediating them.
0: Yeah, and I think we know from general security risk management that, you know, nothing is ever perfect. And I think dealing, you know, how you deal with those obviously gives you a lot of reputation and credibility advantage if you are, as you said, quite open and transparent about the way that you're dealing with security, either within your product or within what you're delivering out to your customers. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it's um, you know, a very positive thing that organizations are working hard to obviously minimize the potential impact of these things once they've been found. So quite a, a proactive response there. And um, We've drifted slightly here into one of the points we were going to talk about um, as well around vulnerability management. I think we both noted over the last month, there were quite a lot of Different pieces of information um, out there about the way that um, obviously organizations are dealing with vulnerability management. And, you know, whilst there haven't been any significant breaches or exposures as a result of those, I think cyber hygiene has been, um, you know, something that a lot of people have been talking about more recently as well. So, how exposed on average do you find organizations are when you conduct testing? You know, how many of those are. Isolated incidents that have been turned into something a bit more so by some of the news feeds, and and actually, how exposed do they leave organisations?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I'd say it it depends heavily on the scope of the test and whether whether the organisation or a system has been tested before. But you know, if the scope we're given is is wider, similar to that that a real threat actor would be looking at, i.e., a whole organisation. Yeah, there are more often than not things that get missed. And I think it's like with vulnerability management, it is the fact that a lot of the time, we our way in will be through sort of undocumented systems, things that were spun up for testing purposes or a specific event, and then either not decommissioned or decommissioned incorrectly, that then aren't on an asset register, they're not looked at, and they you know fall by the wayside. And obviously, as, as with everything in security, three months later there is a way in because a new vulnerability has been published so making sure that you've got good vulnerability management practices you know, regular even just vulnerability scanning with limited human input across the whole of your estate all of your ip ranges whether you believe there to be systems on those addresses or not is you know is a really good way of getting rid of that low hanging fruit because if you don't know it's there you can't do anything about it and a threat actor will find it
0: yeah i think that's a really good point i think just looking at those two examples that we talked about earlier um i think most people would be relatively on top of microsoft patching um you know particularly if their technical stack is kind of predominantly microsoft but some things that sit kind of on the fringe of some of their sort of more general checks and balances such as things like confluence servers Potentially, you know, could be missed in regular patching or update cycles, um, where you know we're kind of dealing with the, the majority rather than the minority. But I, again, you know, I think looking at uh, most of the the articles, I mean, you know, it's not that organisations are bad at patching. I think ultimately the landscape um, has changed quite significantly in recent years as a result of kind of the hybrid working models that that we all sort of seem to have fallen into. Um, and again, you know, the estate doesn't get any smaller. So there are often areas where we can miss these things. And you know, from my perspective, I think reading some of the articles, um, particularly around where vulnerabilities have been identified in in some of these perimeter systems, it's actually you know the potential to leave organisations quite exposed. I, I think you know you made a good point around sort of temporary systems and services that are spun up for particular activities and and then maybe not managed properly. So I guess, you know, the focus being on on vulnerability management, I mean, that's never going to go away, is it? But how can organizations think about the risks presented to them by vulnerabilities differently, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is getting everyone on board, right? Because nobody wants to introduce a vulnerability to an organization. Uh, Well, I say nobody, insider threat is a very real thing. Your average uh, employee doesn't want to introduce that risk to the organization. But, you know, a, a lot of the time, the issues we see arise as a result of someone trying to make their job easier, you know, is probably the most common one. So where we see organizations with, you know, a random GRO or Confluence setup that they weren't aware of, that's vulnerable, why is that the case? So maybe it's because, you know, the DevOps team feel it's the only tool that they can possibly use to, to get that done, so they've, they've spun that up themselves. Well. You know, what understanding the needs of people in the organization and you know encapsulating that in into your, your policy and your processes to say, okay, instead of having you know your team of six responsible for maintaining this piece of software running on the corporate infrastructure, we acknowledge that you need it. Let's onboard it into our systems and processes and have it managed centrally. And then you know that that does significantly reduce the risk. So getting everyone on board and having everyone agree on the way forward with things can really work wonders.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting point, considering that, you know, vulnerability management takes up so much time as well. I think looking at at kind of this risk-based approach and, and dealing with kind of the the outward, inward, et cetera, um, I think it's important to make sure we do stay on top of those. And and sometimes, as you said, it's as simple as making sure that we're scanning the right assets on a regular basis and actually identifying some of these problems to to be able to deal with it. So interesting point, but I mean, vulnerability management is obviously a critical part of um, business as usual activities for most technical teams. So I think we can leave that there. One of the other points that I I noted um, in recent weeks um, and and on sort of different types of of attack vectors, really, um, was smishing. And and obviously, we don't really think about smishing all that much. But I mean, it looks like smishing is is on the rise, Hugh. It's probably worth talking a little bit about some of the ways that smishing can be used to gain access to sort of corporate organization um, environments. And what kind of risks are they presented with? Have you got some examples?
1: Yeah, so smishing, obviously being SMS phishing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure probably most people in this call have had a text at one point saying your Royal Mail item or your Hermes item couldn't be delivered today, pay a one pound re-delivery charge and we'll we'll bring it next time. Obviously, you, you then provide them with your personal data, your name, your address, and obviously your payment details. And it's not a pound they take, is it? It's going to be everything or they'll just sell the details on a a forum obviously that's a that's an individual risk but certainly we can see that risk extend to organizations as well so similar contexts, things like late payments unpaid invoices things like that where you know you you'd send that to someone in finance don't want to cause issues for the for the organization and so yeah they will click that link uh, and go through and make that payment i think because we spend so long in our phishing training talking about emails to people, that when it's on a different screen, it doesn't quite twig that it might be the same threat. I've seen that a lot in in terms of people just not really realizing that. I I guess one of the key things is a lot of organizations, when you get a text message from them, they do just come from a mobile number. So that becomes really hard to distinguish. I think for the longest time, when Amazon sent out one-time pads, you know, they came from a different number each time. You know, recently a lot more organizations have adopted the technology that just shows the, the organization name, but equally, you know, that's not like an SSL certificate. You know, it's, it's just a name. You can't query that to see the authenticity. It's just a word that's given to you. So that also can be forged. So yeah, definitely a, a lot in that space. And also just, I think SMS is, um, you know, problematic in general. I have conversations with clients where they're discussing using SMS for multi-factor authentication purposes. Yes, an SMS-based authentication system is better than just requiring a password, but it is absolutely nowhere near as good as an authenticator application or, or a hardware token because of things like SIM swapping. And again, I've had conversations with clients recently about SIM swapping. People aren't necessarily aware of it. It's a lot more prevalent in the US, but The UK is catching up and it is becoming more possible here where a threat actor will um, work out an individual's phone number, know that they're going to be enrolled via SMS onto some multi factor services, go into a phone shop and say, Hi, it's me. I've got a new SIM card. Please transfer my phone number to this new SIM card and basically steal your phone number and therefore also steal all of the multi factor codes and prompts that come through as well. So yeah, SMS basically is is, is riddled with issues when you're trying to use it as a security measure.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And you've got the kind of blend of of personal and professional application there as well. So I guess the million dollar question here is what what can organizations do to protect themselves? I mean, you're quite right um, in, in a lot of the Kind of training and awareness that that I see and, and that you know the teams deliver they're very focused on email um, because it's kind of the primary business communication method but what about other methods what about um, things coming in potentially from public email addresses through teams um, you know how can organizations protect themselves from these other types of um, sort of social engineering?
1: There's quite a lot of things you can do setting up mobile devices like using using the business Version of Android where it's all set up and maintained, you know, by the IT team, and then just handed out to users, and that's configured in such a way that, you know, all corporate data is then sandboxed, segregated. There's no interaction between applications inside that sandbox and externally, which, you know, with a with a traditional deployment, is a significant risk if people are using their devices as, you know, uh, corporately owned, personally enabled devices yeah there's absolutely nothing stopping an, uh, an individual downloading an application onto the device and then letting that get outdated you know and and then that could leak and, and move laterally from that application onto the corporate resources so having these sandboxes that are set up specifically for business use is a really good thing to do again using things like intune and apple's corporate device management they all do the same thing in that they sandbox off those corporate applications so that they're invisible to the rest of the device.
0: Thanks, Hugh. I guess it's a good opportunity if anybody's got any questions for myself or Hugh, feel free to drop them into the chat window. I think you know, from my perspective, again, you know, looking more generally at the threat landscape, you know, whilst we haven't seen any notable breaches for you know, the, the last month or so, I think generally the threat landscape is still quite, High, I think there are still attractive targets. And I think there are still opportunities, particularly for things like off the back of the pandemic and, and you know, still being used as opportunities for attackers to gain a foothold in, in organizations. So remaining vigilant and sort of staff awareness is, is hugely important as well. You know, some of the topics that I think organisations focus a bit more so on now, um, particularly with people working remotely, do focus on things like social engineering and phishing and, and, and smishing and some of the other um, sort of attack vectors that need us to trust our people as much as trusting our technology. So there is obviously some interesting information out there. And I've seen Matthew's just posted a link to a piece of guidance from the NCSE, which again, is, is a really good source for information, isn't it, Hugh?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The NCSE are really good at keeping up to date, they're not afraid to go against their previous guidance and, and change things as the landscape evolves, which I think is, is really nice. A lot of standards and you know, authorities say, you know, this is the way it's done. And then in the face of a changing world, say, no, 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 we said this is how it's done, this is how it's done. Key example of that is the um, around password policies. Previously they were advising, you know, you wanted as complex passwords as you can have with, with you know, upper, lowercase symbols, alphanumeric all of that. And now they're just saying, you know what, that wasn't the best approach. What we want is just length.
0: Yeah. And I think again, you know, in time with quantum computing, that's probably going to change, isn't it? So guidance will move maybe more towards um, kind of certificate based authentication or, you know, something else that again, you know, gives a a different layer of security. So interesting things, but I think, again, some of the key themes here, you know, be aware of your vulnerabilities and your exposure through some of the systems that you may not focus on all the time. Think about your scanning um, and make sure you're dealing with vulnerabilities as they arise so that you're obviously reducing the risk of of an exposure. And again, think about other techniques that are outside of the norm, um, particularly things like smishing. But from our perspective, that's all we've got for today. Thank you all for attending um, and for your time, Hugh. Thank you for your insight and expertise as always. Uh, If you have any questions, um, please feel free to reach out to Hugh and myself um, and to have a look at some of our other podcasts. But hopefully we'll see you back in the future. Otherwise, have a great afternoon. Thank you, everybody, and take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. See you
0: next time.